Good morning. We are missing Steve this morning, our usual music leader. He is homesick with the flu, so we want to keep him in our prayers for sure. But we're doing just fine singing. I'm proud of all of us hanging in there without him. We've got two texts today. One, the first one is Luke 1, 46 through 55. You can find it on page 1244 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. It's page 1244. Luke 1, 46 to 55. Mary said, With all my heart I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. For God has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored, because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone, from one generation to the next, who honors him as God. He's shown strength with his arm, scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations, pulled the powerful down from their thrones, and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He's come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. And then from Isaiah 35, back a ways in your Bible, verses 1 through 10, page 874, if you're reading along with me, page 874, chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. The desert and the dry land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. They will burst into bloom and rejoice with joy and singing. They will receive the glory of Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the Lord's glory and the splendor of our God. So strengthen the weak hands. Support the unsteady knees. Say to those who are panicking, be strong. Don't fear. Here's your God coming with vengeance, with divine retribution. God will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be cleared. Then the lame will leap like deer and the tongue of the speechless will sing, and waters will spring up in the desert, and streams in the wilderness, and the burning sand will become a pool, and the thirsty ground fountains of water, the jackal's habitat a pasture, grass will become reeds and rushes, a highway will be there, it will be called the holy way, and the unclean won't travel on it, but it will be for those walking on that way. And even fools won't get lost on it. No lion will be there. No predator will go up on it. None of these will be there. 
Only the redeemed will walk on it. The Lord's ransomed ones will return and enter Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. Happiness and joy will overwhelm them. Grief and groaning will fly away. The word of God for the people of God. Isn't that lovely? A desert bursting into bloom, water springing up from dry places, our weak, unsteady knees made firm, all the places where we are blind and deaf made clear, all the stuck parts of our lives unstuck. Grief and groaning fleeing away, everlasting joy on our heads. What more could we want? And sometimes I feel like this passage is true deep down in my bones. Like life is good. Sometimes Christmas really is the most wonderful time of the year. Sometimes. Passages like this sometimes hit home deeply and beautifully. Although this passage was not written in beautiful circumstances, it was written in one of the hardest chapters of Israel's history. See, for 800 years, the Israelites lived in Israel, and some of those years were really good, and some of those years were really a mess, but through it all, they got to live at home. And then the Babylonians conquered them and destroyed Jerusalem and deported a huge portion of the population, force-marched them 900 miles to the east. Can you imagine being taken from your home like that? It makes me think of how we treated the Native Americans in our country. Force marched 900 miles. Can you imagine the homesickness, the hopelessness? That's the context for this gorgeous passage. It is distinctly unlovely. And I'm not sure we can imagine quite how difficult this time must have been. But we do have our own experiences of grief and groaning. Especially here in the middle of December. Sometimes it's the most wonderful time of the year. But sometimes it is not. Especially as the days grow short and the nights grow long. The middle of December can be a dark and lonely time. The end of this passage promises grief and groaning will flee away, but that is hard to believe sometimes. When the biopsy comes back and it's bad news, when you realize the mental illness is going to be a lifelong struggle, when addiction rules your life, or the life of someone you love when there is not enough cash in the bank account to pay the bills that are outstanding 
when physical disability makes you question your sense of self, when the way ahead is anything but clear. How can we hear these lovely words about deserts bursting into bloom and grief and groaning fleeing away when we live with so much of that stuff? When it is distinctly unlovely? How can we not dismiss this as just pie in the sky, by and by? And yet it's the promise that our lives will be refreshed, that our trembling hands will grow still, that our knees will go strong, that water of life will spring up, that joy will be on our heads. That is the promise. It's the promise for those folks in exile, and it's the promise for us, too. Sometimes these kinds of promises fall flat. We're in the middle of that kind of grief and groaning we were just talking about. It can sound like, so you're miserable? Well, just cheer up. Have you tried that yet? Maybe that'll help a bit if you just cheer up. That kind of thing is infuriating when we are in the midst of grief and groaning. And yet, for some reason, in that situation of incredible difficulty, they hung on to this. They passed this word from mouth to mouth. They copied it again and again and again until we have it here in front of us. 2,500 years later, they hung on to this promise, even in that time of grief and groaning. And I've been thinking about that. Why would that be? Why wasn't it just pie in the sky by and by for them? Why did they hang on to this? It can't be because it felt realistic all the time. That just doesn't square. I've been wondering if it was a way to hold on to an identity that was not defined by the Babylonians. The Babylonians could decide where they lived and how they lived and almost everything about their lives, but here they had some corner of hope and joy that the Babylonians could not touch, could not define. They had this little kernel of identity, of hope, of joy that they could claim no matter what. I think that's the point of passages like this. They lift our eyes from our current overwhelmed reality and promise a hope and a joy that is deeper than anything else. Of course, when you're in a dark place, it can be impossible to hold on to that kind of hope for yourself. When grief and groaning overwhelm you, when depression because of a crisis or because of grief or because of mental illness settles in, it can be impossible 
to hold on to these kinds of promises for yourself. And that's why we need each other. That's why the Babylonians passed them from person to person. Not the Babylonians, the Israelites passed them from person to person because they needed someone to hold on to that hope when they couldn't. That's what we do here. Some of us come with grief and groaning and depression, and some of us come just in joy on simple days where life is clearly a gift, and we hold that together in community. And the ones of us who are rejoicing can say for the ones who are not, we believe in this hope. We'll hold on to that until you're back. It's what we do here for one another. Because promises like this are life-saving, literally. When the slaves sang songs of freedom, it made them sane in the fields of oppression. It saved their souls. When Appalachian miners sang songs of relief and rest, it gave them this unquenchable light that they could take into those tunnels with them that nothing, no darkness, could put out. Promises like this can be life-saving, holding on to joy, either for ourselves or for one another, can save our lives. Again and again, this passage promises joy. Above all else, this passage promises joy, and I think that is because joy is subversive. Joy is subversive. It is deeper than mere happiness or cheerfulness. Joy is a deeper note than that. And it is subversive. It looks at all that is wrong in the world and in our lives and says there is something that cannot be put out. We need to hold on to in protest of all that is wrong in the world. The poet Jack Gilbert puts this beautifully in one of my favorite poems, A Brief for the Defense. And he talks about the suffering of the world. He says, sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not dying in one place, they are dying in another. And he goes through these images of suffering in the world. And then he says, we must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. What a line. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. What we pay attention to is what we worship. And if all we are willing to see is grief and groaning in the world and in our lives, then we are missing something essential. We need promises like this that we hold for ourselves and that we hold for each other 
to draw us back to joy, to help us risk delight. How do we do that? How do we nurture joy? Another of my favorite authors, a poet named Ross Gay, set himself an assignment a couple of years ago to write a short reflection every single day for a year about something that gave him delight. Every day. And he called these reflections essayettes. And he wrote these little essayettes every single day. And some of them, some of those delights were simple and easy. The delight of hearing your favorite song come on at a coffee shop. The delight of the way that the afternoon light cuts through your kitchen. The delight of how good food tastes when you share it with one another. He wrote about easy, simple delights, and he wrote about harder delights. On the anniversary of his friend's murder, he wrote about the delight of what she had been, what her life had been. In a context of pervasive racism, he wrote about the delight of a glance of solidarity between himself and another black man. And when he was in a rough spot, a place of grief and groaning, he wrote about the delight of connecting his sorrow with someone else's and finding recognition in that. Easy delight and hard-won delight every day for a year. What delights would you write about? No matter what situation you find yourself in today, whether it is easy or unimaginably hard or somewhere in between, what delights would you write about? How can you imagine the desert blooming and water springing up? What delight will you risk? What joy do you trust? Because it is promise. And promises like this are defiant. And they are beautiful. And they are life saving. Amen. In a minute, we're going to sing a version of the song that Mary sang, that text we read first. Mary was a young woman living in a colonized land in poverty. Her situation was as hard as those exiled Babylonians. And yet when God came to her, and the angel asked her to give birth to God. She said yes, and she sang. And we are still singing her song of defiance and beauty and joy all these years later. <laughs> 